Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. This month marks the 78th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as the first atomic blast which took place in New Mexico. The new film Oppenheimer focuses on the physicist who led the Manhattan Project here in Los Alamos, Robert Oppenheimer. But you will see nothing about the New Mexicans who lived and worked at the project or at the Trinity site in southern New Mexico. Mariah Gomez is working to highlight those untold stories. She's an associate professor in the Honors College at the University of New Mexico and is the author of Nuclear Nuevo Mexico, Colonialism and the Effects of the Nuclear Industrial Complex on Nuevo Mexicanos. Gomez is from the communities about which she writes. I'm from northern New Mexico, from the Puaque Valley. I grew up in the community of El Rancho, uh, which is about 20 miles off the hill from Los Alamos. The labs have always been a part of my life. I have lots of family and friends and neighbors who work at the labs, but also my great-grandparents were dispossessed from their ranch in the 1940s when the Manhattan Project moved into New Mexico, and they were one of over three dozen families to be displaced from their ranch or farms. And you wrote that New Mexico is not a national nuclear sacrifice zone, but rather a nuclear colony. What is that distinction? There's a long history of New Mexico being called a sacrifice zone. And my argument is really that the country didn't have to sacrifice much in terms of giving up New Mexico. And this traces back really to the rhetoric during um, American colonization in the late 1840s. So after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed on February 2nd, 1848, and that's the treaty that ended the U.S.-Mexico War. You know, it took New Mexico, as we all know, 64 years to become a state. One of the articles in the treaty stated basically that all former Mexican territories needed to become states or would become states as quickly as possible. And we know that that wasn't upheld. And so whereas a state like California, where gold was found in 1849, became a state in 1850, New Mexico would not be admitted into the Union because of very racist rhetoric around the, quote, Mexican and Indian problem. Dr. Laura Gomez, who used to be at UNM at the law school, has a phenomenal book that talks a lot about this called Manifest Destinies, the Making of the Mexican-American Race. You know, that's really where this rhetoric of sacrifice zone kind of becomes complex and complicated. And so I don't like that term. Those of you who have seen Christopher Nolan's new film Oppenheimer know that New Mexico is depicted, as we expected it would be, as being totally remote, isolated and uninhabited. When in the 1940 census, we know that over 530,000 people lived in New Mexico. And so what it means to be a nuclear colony is that we really are this place that has existed as having this importance now to the United States as being this kind of nuclear center for the country because we have everything in the nuclear fuel cycle from mining of uranium to the burial of nuclear waste. When the military looked for sites for the Manhattan Project, they actually rejected a place in Utah because it would displace farm families. So why didn't the same concern apply to the Pajarito Plateau, where there was, you mentioned, also farming and ranching families? Yeah, so the place in Utah that you're talking about was called Oak City, Utah. 
and it would have meant displacing around 30 presumably Mormon farming families, white farming families. Whereas in New Mexico, over three dozen what were called Hispano or Nuevo Mexicano, you know, during the 18, I'm sorry, 1940s, a lot of them were still referring to themselves as Mexicano farming families. And in addition to that, you know, the other half of that complexity is that these were ancestral homelands to Tewa people. And so I think that that's being left out of kind of contemporary conversations as well. We see it pop up, that reference pop up twice in the Oppenheimer film, once where they're siding or they're looking for a site and they say, oh, the Indians just use it for burial grounds. And then again, when Oppenheimer meets with President Truman and Truman asks him, I hear you're leaving Los Alamos. What do you want to do with it? And Oppenheimer tells him, give it back to the Indians. As it appears in the film and as it was back in the 1940s, um, it was racist rhetoric. In General Groves's memoir, it's called Now It Can Be Told, he talks about having misgivings about displacing the Indian farmers as they were driving through Hemis. And so the national story or kind of the myth that's told is that all that was up there was Los Alamos Ranch School, which was an elite school for boys, when in reality they knew that there were other brown farming families and indigenous peoples who utilized the land. Some of these removals were forceful, violent even. Yeah. So I'll skip ahead and then work backwards. So in 1999, uh, then Energy Secretary, who was also former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, um, offered to give the Pajarito homesteaders about nine acres of land where they would build kind of a tribute or a memorial um, to the homesteaders who were evicted. And the homesteaders rejected that and instead filed a class action lawsuit. So the class action lawsuit was settled for $10 million. Um, my family was one of the families that was part of that lawsuit. There were 34 families who were originally signed on to that lawsuit. What happened as part of not just the lawsuit proceedings, but also kitchen table conversations over the past 60 years before that, were stories from families who had gone through that process of displacement and eviction. And so part of the reason why that lawsuit was settled in favor of the homesteaders was because the courts ruled that due process was not followed, which meant that the letters of taking that are part of the eminent domain process either were not filed, were not received. You know, all of these letters were sent to these farmers in English when most of them were predominantly or exclusively Spanish speaking. Um, some of them were illiterate. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of lament in my the writing of my book is that I focus exclusively on the homesteaders who were evicted, but there were way more families who were using the land. On my paternal great-grandparents' side, they had grazing rights on the plateau. And so I remember finding the sale of the grazing rights permit, and I remember finding my great-grandmother's signature, which was an X, and then next to it was her mark. And here I was working on a dissertation in English department on an English degree, and you know it was like this just in-your-face reminder that my great-grandmother, who was Spanish-speaking, was also illiterate, right? And so that was part of the settlement in terms of not following due process. But also a lot of these stories told how there were violent evictions. One family told how their um, cattle that they couldn't 
take off the property was used for target practice. My great-grandparents had 15 days from when they actually got notice that they had to leave the property. They had 15 days. You know, there was no way. They called them carros de bestias, um, horse-drawn wagons. There was no way that they could remove all the implementation, farming implementation, whatever, in 15 days. It wasn't humanly possible. So, yes, there are lots of recollections of those violent removals. Mm. As you mentioned, the latest big narrative about the Manhattan Project is the film Oppenheimer. And it gives that impression that there's really no one on the plateau aside from the boys' school. But as you mentioned, the federal government created a compensation fund after the lawsuits in the mid-2000s. In light of that, why do these narratives about empty space continue? You know, that's the American obsession with the West. It's part of Manifest Destiny, the God-given right to expand westward where nobody had ever been. And so, you know, Oppenheimer becomes just another figure in that westward expansion where uh, Los Alamos was empty and prime for the taking. I think it's also interesting that the first scene of them being in Los Alamos came up. You could see Cerro Pedernal in the background. And it was Abiquiu. <laughs> yeah, and it was Abiquiu. And I thought it was so fascinating that they had to get Pedernal in the background. Because it's so picturesque. Well, it's so picturesque, yeah. and, and people recognize it from George O'Keefe, who was like what we call a, another culture vulture, you know? Um, and so it's just interesting how these there's this layering of all of these colonial rhetorics. How did nuclear colonization alienate and divide the community that was here already? There are so many layers to this. In terms of the stipulations that they had laid out for uh, the site, my argument is that it actually only met one of them, which was that it had a reasonable availability of labor. And so early on, they made a workforce of the people from the valley, both Española and Puaque Valleys. In the early years of the Manhattan Project, they would load Nuevo Mexicano labors men onto buses and they would bus them up to Los Alamos where they were day laborers. And the women actually stayed in the homes of a lot of the scientists and they were housekeepers and babysitters. And they mostly stayed weeks at a time. So we see an alienation that develops alongside it where people from the valley simultaneously become alienated from their home communities because they have these, quote, good jobs at the labs in Los Alamos where they make a lot more money than people not working at the labs in New Mexico, which, you know, relates to a whole different conversation about economy in New Mexico. And then you also have situations where they're alienated from Los Alamos because they're from the valley, because they're brown. And so over the years, this has taken on many different kind of manifestations. We really saw it come to a head in the 1990s during the reduction in forces that happened at the lab, where it became a a really major issue when people lost their jobs. Yeah, you had a quote from the lab director at that time. Yeah, Sig Hecker. There was an article that appeared in the Santa Fe New Mexican where he supposedly made a comment during a closed door meeting that he was sick and tired of the lab being the social welfare program of northern New Mexico. That's a loaded statement, but we know there's also some truth in that, which is what makes it even more complex. Mm -hmm. You note that families of these men might have thought their relatives who worked at the lab were, you know, sweeping floors and cleaning toilets. They actually did very dangerous work. What did they do? Some of them did. You know, I just want to clarify that this has changed over the years. We're not just in these positions anymore. In the early days, that's what we were doing. That's what our people were doing. And so one of the men who I had interviewed for my book talked about how 
They would make them leave at the end of the day and they would run them through Geiger counters. And if they were ringing, they would tell them to go back and wash off so they would scrub down with Bonami and they would tell them to do this over and over as if Bonami was going to clean off any radiation. But they also didn't tell them why they were ringing or what it meant. And so as a result, many people didn't see the need to do it and they, without washing off, went home and a lot of them got sick Mm. and or died. One of the chapters in my book also talks about explosives incidents that happened where area men were killed because of lack of protection. How did the whole structure of the lab compound those tragedies? You know, in reading those incident reports, which are called accident reports, it was really difficult for me to go through those. It was one, infuriating because, you know, they talked about them as not having, as either having very basic educations or not having educations and as having been only a farmer previous or only this or that. And so I think part of the difficulty around those incidents is that the families were never, one, notified what actually happened until Carrie Skidmore started breaking out, you know, these reports and bringing the family into these conversations. But also, like, bodies were never returned to these families. Mm. And so it was extremely difficult for some of these people to talk to me. Some of them talked to me off the record. They didn't go into the book. Um, you know, they're still contending with with what happened with their, to their family members. Because it happened behind the fence line, too. I mean, you couldn't go to the place they died. Exactly. And so, you know, in northern New Mexico, throughout New Mexico, and even in other parts of the U.S., we have descansos. I mean, we're used to seeing descansos here in Albuquerque or even ghost bikes, which are a form of descansos. But, you know, they couldn't set up a a descanso for these families because even if it was there and eventually there was a marker that was put up, they couldn't visit the site because it was behind the gates, so to speak. And so, you know, how do you bring closure to that type of death when families can't engage in their traditional cultural practices? Did you find people who worked at the lab or still do and they have mixed emotions? Yes. I think that it's difficult for people to critique the history of the labs when They are employed by the labs. They have good jobs at the labs. It's brought a lot of economic freedom for their own personal families. And so that's what makes it really hard to talk about this subject. I've never advocated for the labs to shut down. This would have total economic fallout for these families in northern New Mexico, for my community, right? My home community. But also these are national scientific laboratories, of which we have two of them in New Mexico. And they don't have to be nuclear laboratories or weapons laboratories. And so I think that maybe we're at the point where we can start to kind of shift the discussion as discussions of climate change increase. And, you know, these other conversations that we're having around other types of science that can happen at these laboratories that's badly needed. There is a lot of other kinds of research and work going on at these laboratories. The main focus is on nuclear technology, right? Yeah. I mean, the vast majority, overwhelming majority, uh, focuses on nuclear weapons and around nuclear issues. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Mariah Gomez about her book, Nuclear Nuevo Mexico, Colonialism and the Effects of the Nuclear Industrial Complex on Nuevo Mexicanos. 
You write that the selection of Los Alamos for the Manhattan Project set everything else in motion for nuclear colonization in New Mexico. How so? You know, around the same time as the Manhattan Project was wrapping up, there had been discovery of uranium in New Mexico on indigenous lands. And so New Mexico became heavily overmined for uranium. In the 1980s, the Jack Pyle Pit in Paguati Village in Laguna Pueblo was the largest open pit uranium mine in the world. And to this day, this is still on the prior- national priorities list for Superfund sites. So it is one of the most contaminated sites in the country, and it has not been cleaned up. And the devastation that this has had for indigenous communities living nearby, I know it's not talked about enough. It's definitely not understood. When we talk about nuclear disasters, everybody thinks of Three Mile Island as being the worst nuclear disaster in U.S. history, but most people actually don't talk about because they don't know about the nuclear disaster that happened in New Mexico on July 16, 1979, which was the Church Rock uranium spill, where 100,000 gallons of irradiated water flowed down the Rio Puerco. And so uranium mining and everything that has come along with it is part of that devastation, as part of those effects. The legacy waste that was thrown in unlined pits at the Manhattan Project site in Los Alamos, everything from the chromium plumes, and now we're fighting the proposal for the Holtec site, which would be a site for high-level nuclear waste in southern New Mexico. How did these same factors play out in the selection of the site for the Trinity test? Again, there were these assumptions that the area mm-hmm. was uninhabited, and certainly in Oppenheimer, we don't see any people. Right. Right. And I mean, it's the same argument. You you had people, but it's who they were that made them look the other way or ignore the fact that they were predominantly Hispano and indigenous communities. And so, you know, Groves is on record saying that it needed to be close to Los Alamos, as close as they could possibly get it. You know, it followed that same rhetoric. It needed to be remote and uninhabitable, uninhabited slash uninhabitable, which I realize are different. But with the Trinity site, the language was uninhabitable. And it wasn't, right? And this is why we see the Trinity downwinders who, because of the film Oppenheimer, have received a lot of attention, and rightly so. They've been trying to pass the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act amendments. I worked with the downwinders in 2017. We released the health impact assessment, which showed the need to amend RICA to include the Trinity downwinders and others. It's not that it was uninhabitable. It became uninhabitable mm-hmm. after it became contaminated. No one was ever notified ahead of the Trinity test. One could argue there were security reasons for that. But after the explosion, there were no epidemiological tests done, even though people clearly had huge exposure to fallout. We know that they knew that there were dangers, but they weren't interested in investigating those long-term effects. They have discussed in the literature that they should have evacuated nearby communities based on the readings. But then the readings dropped by the afternoon and so they didn't evacuate. You know, there's a new study out. It shows that the fallout actually would have covered 46 states plus Canada and Mexico. And as you point out in the book, of course, these people were even more impacted because they were living on the land, growing their own food, using cisterns for water. All that made for much stronger impacts. And we see something similar happening in uranium communities where they're actually building homes out of dirt. And so that radiation or that contamination ends up Mm. in their homes. These jacales and adobe homes that people in southern New Mexico had. So not just in the acequia water, the cistern water, but in the soil, in the animals that they were hunting, the milk from the cows. And so all of these pathways that 
aren't typically thought about for city folk. And so this is what makes uh, New Mexico a really interesting example of environmental racism is because it's one of a really unique data sets of rural-based communities and what happens with environmental racism. You mentioned RECA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. For the first time, it was passed by the Senate, put in an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, still has to clear the House. They have to go back and negotiate a compromise bill. Why do you think it has taken so long? Hmm. It's all tied together. I think that it's been a blatant disregard of who lives in New Mexico, who we are. You know, one of the things in RICA that is kind of interesting is that it starts with an apology. It starts with an apology to the people who were affected by the Nevada test site for this atmospheric nuclear testing. That's the original RICA. That's the original mm-hmm. RICA and the, and the 2000 amendments. You know, the federal government has never apologized for exploding a nuclear weapon in New Mexico on its own people. And so through the efforts of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium and a lot of other coalitional effort, Pacific Islanders, folks in Guam, uh, Navajo Nation, people in Idaho and other places that were affected by fallout from the Nevada test sites. This coalitional work over the years has really helped garner um, support. And one of the biggest champions has been now Senator Ben Ray Lujan, who was working on RICA amendments when he was a representative. And now Teresa Ledger Fernandez has picked this up. I think one of the reasons it's gained support and we finally saw it pass through the Senate last week is because there's bipartisan support. The other part about this that I don't think we're having enough discussion around is what else is being paired with these bills. What are we going to have to give up to get these passed? You know, the House bill is a little bit interesting. You know, on one hand, I urge everybody to contact their representatives to pass the RICA amendment, but also I encourage everybody to read up on the bill so they know what's attached because there's an urgency in this, right? Because Senator Lujan was able to get a two-year extension. RICA was supposed to sunset in 2022. Now it'll sunset in 2024 unless the amendments are passed. You're referring to the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. Right. So you're saying that you have the amendment, but... Who knows what else? If to get that, what do you as the sausage making process in DC? You know, that's yeah. that's how government works, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I mean, I don't know. I, I think it just makes it really interesting, makes it very complex. It's always been very complex. Um, it's part of the reason it's never been amended, you know, today, even though the original RICA has paid out over $2.5 billion, New Mexicans have never been eligible for that. Well, I take that back. New Mexican downwinders and post-71 uranium miners, um, which is another kind of weird provision of the act. But it's really interesting. But I think it's really important for New Mexico that we amend RICA it really will bring a whole new economy into our community and create new pathways for jobs, totally new economies around medical and health industries. Because you can get compensation, actual money, but you get medical access. You get health care, right? This is one of the things that has been really interesting to me in the last, I don't know how many years, five plus years, learning about communities who are affected by the Trinity test is that they're not receiving, especially in southern New Mexico, most of them, many of them are not receiving health care in New Mexico. So as a business, they're taking it into Arizona, they're taking it into Texas, Mm. some of them even into Mexico. And so to get you know, treatment for cancer, whatever type of um, health treatment they're receiving, we could be providing this to them in New Mexico. 
And how do you see nuclear colonialism continuing to play out in New Mexico? You mentioned Holtec. <laughs> yeah, you know, and in terms of government, again, like I think the Holtec example is going to be a very precedent setting case in the next few years, because, of course, we know that New Mexico passed the bill during the legislative session last year, Senate Bill 53, to prevent Holtec from coming into New Mexico. But then the Nuclear Regulatory Commission license Holtec in May. And so when the federal government is saying yes and the state government is saying no, now we're going to have a battle over jurisdiction. And um, it's going to be really interesting to follow this over the next few years. So Holtec is definitely one example. The expansion of the waste isolation pilot plant is another example. You know, we're in the 1990s. It was like, this is it. This is what it's going to be. Close it off, seal it off forever. And now it's like, well, I think we can build another section. Um, The development of new plutonium pits is another way. The continued applications for uranium mining in New Mexico So again, we are not a sacrifice zone. We continue to be this nuclear colony. We are not in a post-colonial period in terms of nuclear colonialism in New Mexico. This is what I would call now we're in this period of coloniality where we're seeing these effects um, manifesting into these new ways of life for people. Tell me what coloniality is versus colonialism and how this relates to the nuclear legacy here. The thing with colonialism, if colonization, this is the academic mm-hmm. academic ease, I guess, but mm-hmm. if colonization is a process, it's an event. Colonialism or settler colonialism is a structure. Um, it means the colonizers come and they never leave, which is what we have been dealing with. But now I think we're moving toward this period of coloniality where these effects have so significantly changed and shaped and continue to affect not just our landscape, but also our our culture in New Mexico. We can't ignore it anymore. The average uh, New Mexican cannot ignore it anymore. And I guarantee you, wherever you are in New Mexico, you're being affected in some way by the nuclear industrial complex right now. What kind of waste is the Holtec facility supposed to take? The Holtec proposal is for a high-level nuclear waste facility. And so nuclear waste is separated into various categories. For example, WIP is a transuranic waste facility. High-level nuclear waste refers to the waste that's left over from fuel processing. And finally, you write about the power of Querencia. Talk about what that is and how you see it as one way as you say, to decolonize nuclear New Mexico. I would urge everybody to check out um, a pretty recently published book that was edited by Dr. Vanessa Fonseca Chavez, uh, Levi Romero, Romero, and Dr. Spencer Herrera. The book Querencia, the collection, was published by UNM Press recently. And Querencia is, is the idea that it's a place where one feels safe, the place where one knows like the back of their hand. It actually comes from a Spanish word that refers to the place in the corral, in the corral, where the animals would go um, to retreat to um, kind of their safe space or their resting place. And so, you know, the way that we use the word mostly refers to a place, a love of home. It's not just home or homeland, but it's that smell or that taste or that feeling that one gets when one knows that they're home and they're safe and they're loved and cared for. And so I think that one of the things that a lot of people have been trying to do in terms of anti-nuclear work or nuclear safety work is that we try to remind people that we're not just victims, 
we are resilient communities who have fought off these colonial efforts, but also continue to engage in these traditional and land-based cultural practices. So, for example, you have New Mexico Sequia Association, Tewa Women United and the Healing Oasis Garden in in Española. You have all of these other tremendous organizations and groups that are doing work around keeping and maintaining our traditional practices those are decolonial. Maybe that's just academic language, but those are the ways that we're fighting off this colonialism. It's not just people saying, here I am standing with my hand open waiting for money. It's people who continue to engage in the face of colonialism with these these land-based practices, traditional practices. Uh, I think you wrote that you would hope that that's enough to decolonize nuclear New Mexico, but you realize it's not. Yeah, I mean, when I first started doing this research, I was angry that I never knew my great-grandparents' ranch. Um, I was angry that I never knew my grandfather, who worked in Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project, and he died of colon cancer before I was born. And I think part of processing not just that anger, but also through all of this research is understanding that that's just too idyllic. Um, You know, querencia is a decolonial practice. It's not just this poetic kind of esoteric idea of now we're just going to make everything better. It's a lot of on the ground work. And as much as I wish that I could be home in northern New Mexico doing this on a daily basis, I also recognize my tremendous privilege being at the institution and being at UNM um, where, you know, we joke is not the ivory tower, but the adobe tower. (laughs) Um, And I know that other people who work with these organizations that I've mentioned and others are fighting it on a daily basis. Mariah Gomez, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Megan. Mariah Gomez is an associate professor in the Honors College at the University of New Mexico and the author of the book Nuclear Nuevo Mexico, Colonialism and the Effects of the Nuclear Industrial Complex on Nuevo Mexicanos. I'm Megan Kamrick, and thank you for listening to KUNM.